Saul made excuses. David confessed immediately. The challenging question is, which are we? Last week we talked about confession of faith, what that means. Our ability to confess our sins, surrender them to God, let God be God, is what we're going to talk about today. But it is based on our high um, view of God or our high view of ourselves. That's where we're headed today. Just as a point of review in your outline, if you pull that out, we've been talking about David, especially with the disaster around his sin against Bathsheba, and that he compromised, he sinned instead of obeying God. He was in the wrong place instead of being where God wanted him to be, and as a result, he got vulnerable and he committed horrible sins. Then we saw that uh, the next part of the story was confrontation, that God will come to us to confront us with our sin and So God sent the prophet Nathan to David to point out his sin. And then we talked about consequences. First, we saw that Jesus took the consequences for our sin so that we did not die. And and, um, the prophet Nathan said to David, you will not die. Why? Because God forgave. But the second part of consequences that we suffer the consequences of our sin and stupidity or we reap the benefits of our wise choices. And so we talked about that. And then last week we began to talk about the fourth C in our, in our um, study of this um, part of David's life. And we saw that the Greek word literally means, for confession means saying the same thing. Thus, confession is to agree, to promise, or to admit something. And we saw that in in Christianity, in the doctrine of Christianity, and in in the usage of the words, the the, uh, Hebrew and Greek words, that confession has two parts to it. Confession has two meanings, really. One is the confession of faith, and that is to agree with God about who he is and what he does. That's why the Apostles' Creed, that's why we're saying we believe, that's why we're saying everlasting God it's a confession, it's agreement, it's, it's um, to agree with God about who he is and what he does. And we talked about um, some aspects of that last week, and, and we saw that prayer and fasting is a way, it's a path to develop a deeper confession of faith, a deeper understanding of who God is, and a deeper obedience to, do, to join him in what he does. Now we go to the second type of confession, the the second way that the Bible uses the word confession, and that's confession of sin. So today we want to talk about what is true confession of sin. Not only confession of faith, but uh, so confession of faith is agreeing with God about who he is and what he does. Confession of sin is to agree with God about sin. Now it's not that we're unfamiliar with the idea of confession, right? It's a part of our culture. And last week we talked about how in the Catholic Church they have specific practice of confessing your sins to a priest um, and what that process looked like and how it's a distortion of what the Bible really wants us to be about because it's not supposed to be fearful. But we also hear that word confession used a lot. And, I, and I've, I've come to the conclusion that, when, that one of the, the devil's strategies is try to take words that mean one thing in the Bible and to make them mean something else. So that when in our culture, 
when we hear them, we are not un, we, our, our natural point of reference um, is not the Bible word, but it's the world's word. Do you know what you get if you type in true confessions into an internet search browser? <laughs> you get movies, books, testimonies, websites of all these people that are confessing. All, and, and especially the websites. It's like, you know, you, anonymous confessions here. And so there's all kinds of stuff. Confession in our culture then has come to mean getting something off your chest because you want to feel better, right? Would you agree with that? The movies and the books are these salacious, um, sinful kinds of things that just are meant to draw you into sexual stuff. All of that which is not what God has in mind. So what does it mean? I've even, I even discovered that as I was thinking about this week is we'll sometimes say, I have a confession to make. And usually it's because, you know, I'm, I, you know, Chilla has a dog and I don't like the dog or, you know, just something. And, it, and, I, and I've discovered that I've used that word in a way that is just to talk about something silly or to, to you know, to say that, again, you know, I, I thought it was going this direction, but I'm going this. And I realized that is playing in the devil's hand too. Confe- we need to take confession seriously because it is a powerful gift that God has given to us. So let's talk about confession of sin is to agree with God about my sin. It's to agree with God about, well, not even just about my sin, it's about sin in general, which we'll take a look at in a moment. So when we confess our sin, is we, we are saying, we are agreeing with God that we have done something against Him. We have done something to, to disobey Him. We are agreeing with God that I am guilty before Him, and that I have broken His law, and that I deserve the penalty of sin. I am confessing, I am agreeing with God about my sin. And so in 2 Samuel 12, 13, after Nathan was used by God to uh, deliver this confrontation in such a masterful way, David's immediate response was, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. I agree with God that I have broken his law. I have disobeyed him. And even though the impact of his sin was against Bathsheba, it was against the nation of Israel, it was against Uriah, it was against it's a, it was against God primarily. Anytime we do anything that is disobedient to God, um, it is sin. So confession causes me to think right side up about sin in general and sin specifically in my own life. So audience participation time. What is the culture's attitude towards sin? What is the culture's attitude towards sin? It's no big deal, right? Somebody else? Yeah, just, 
Yeah, it's accepted. It's, it's just the way human nature works. Yeah, who cares? It doesn't matter. Everybody, yeah. yeah. What's that? Yeah, just do you, you know, and, and you know, every, and, and then we hear phrases like, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, what difference does it make? Oh, yeah, yeah. And then there's that attitude of some of the things that we would, that the Bible calls sin, they wouldn't call sin. And some of the things that we would say is obedience, they would call sin. And so the biggest switch, I think, is it's no big deal. It's just what people do. Worse than what the culture believes about sin is what has seeped sometimes into Christianity. People who call themselves followers of Christ that are still upside down. One of them is, you know, everybody sins every day and God loves us and God forgives and so what's the big deal? And it's this dismissiveness about sin. God loves everybody. And, and here's another one is God loves everybody. Everybody's going to heaven anyway. So he forgives sins and that's not true. And that has crept in. So what is it? What is it that God really means when he says? In 1 John chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If we confess our sins, if we agree with God about our sins then he's faithful, he's just, he'll forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I fear that we take this too superficially at times. Yeah, I, I sinned, I shouldn't have done that. Let's talk about it. Confession of sin means we respond to God's conviction. Did you know that you won't even recognize that you've sinned except that the Holy Spirit puts his finger on it? Nobody comes to God by themselves. We're all blind. Uh, one of the consequences of, of sin coming into the world is that we get blind to it. And we don't even realize it. And so it's a gift from God. God comes to us. He convicts us. He puts his finger on it, and, which is the only way that we come to face our sin. So here's the process. I, I want to um, name these, and then we're going to look at a scripture that highlights this process of of coming to grips with what confession of my sin really is. And then we'll go in detail. When God comes to us and convicts us, he leads us to see it, to see the sin. Because we don't see it on our own. David was blind, right? David was blind to sin. He, in the back of his mind, maybe he knew he was doing something wrong, but he was king and, you know, he was just blatantly doing wrong. And he never came to the place where he was convicted of it until Nathan shows up, and then he confessed. We have to feel it, both um, emotionally and spiritually. God convicts us, we see it, we feel it, and then the response is to admit that we have sinned, and then finally repent of it, which is to make that 180 degree turn. Confession is a gift from God. It's the gateway to provide cleansing and freedom. Now I want you to look at me. God does not want you just to be forgiven of your sin and then continue to live with the guilt and shame and 
um, the burden of you being a bad person the rest of your life, which is what a religious system will do for you. And so you just keep coming back to confession, confession and, you, you, and then you go do some things to try to make it right, but you never get freed from the guilt and the shame of it. God's desire is for us to live free. Jesus told us he wants us to live in freedom. He wants us to live as children of God with our sins removed and our shame taken away. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 again says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful. He's dependable and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from everything, including shame. God takes the initiative, reaches toward us, and then we have to do this. So turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. And I want to look at um, an interaction between uh, Jesus and Peter that I'd never seen quite this way before. I knew that, that uh, Jesus wanted to forgive Peter and restore him, but I never saw some of the nuances of what he was doing and that he wants to do for us as well. So Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 30, is our first scripture. And then we're going to go to John chapter 21. Matthew 26, beginning with verse 30. This is at the end of Jesus' time with the disciples. They have uh, celebrated the, the Last Supper. He washed their feet. And now it says, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter, with right motives, Peter, because he loved Jesus, responds with horror, thinking, no, this is my Lord and Savior. I No, he says, though they all fall away. <laughs> and it's always bad to compare yourself to other people. Okay? Because you're, you, you're on slippery footing. That's, that's the devil. Peter answered him, though they all fall away, though everybody else bails out on you, though everybody else betrays you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And I've come to believe that Jesus specifically said that to prepare Peter for what he would do in betraying him. Out of his love for him. You see, God is always the one taking the initiative towards us. He is always the one reaching towards us. We, um, I hate the phrase when people say, I found Jesus. No, you're giving yourself way too much credit. You didn't find anything. He found you. And you turned around and he was there. Don't take any credit for anything. He found you. And so, and, 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 and so Jesus is taking the initiative. And he says, no, 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 no. And I don't, I, we don't know the voice inflection, but I don't think there's any scolding here with Peter. I think he's just stating truth so that when it happens, Peter will know that Jesus knew what he was going to do. And it would set him up for the restoration that would come later. So when you disobey God, God is not shocked. He knows. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows. And so when you disobey God, 
God is not surprised. God doesn't go, oh, I never expected that. No, he knows exactly what's going to happen. And he has already been working to arrange the circumstance so that you can be restored. That's his love for you. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Peter's heart was in the right place, but he was not capable. And notice what the, the last phrase in that verse. And all the disciples said the same. Peter wasn't alone. Peter wasn't the only one. He was just the loudest <laughs> and the most adamant. And he was, he was going to be the leader later. And so Jesus dealt with him in that frame of mind. Now, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 21. John chapter 21, we find that Jesus died, went to the cross, died, was resurrected, and now has been appearing to the disciples periodically from time to time. So I don't know how long this, uh, the time frame is, the Bible doesn't tell us the time frame from um, Peter's denial on that night to this scenario or how much longer Jesus is going to be with them. But John chapter 21 um, captures a time when the disciples are hanging out and they don't know what to do with themselves. Peter decides, I'm going fishing. And they, some of the other disciples go along with them. Peter sh uh, Jesus shows up. They're not catching any fish. He hollers, cast the net on the other side of the boat and you'll find some. So they, they do. They get 153 fish. And, and one of the disciples goes, this feels familiar. I think that's Jesus. Peter jumps out, swims up there, and Jesus is cooking fish for him. Now, there are some nuances in this, in beginning with chapter, or, or verse 15, that we don't have time to deal with. But I want to zero in on, on some, some parts of this that shows us Jesus' incredible act of love in convicting Peter, putting his finger on his sin and his betrayal, and leading Peter to confession to set him free. Look at me, look at me. God wants whatever you have done, whatever you are, and, and my observation about us as human beings is the devil tries to get all of us to carry some shame from our past. That there's a moment in time, there's something that we've done that we are embarrassed by, that we, we don't want anybody to find out because we are still ashamed of it. And I'm telling you here today, God wants to set you free from that. Amen. He wants you to be able to say, you know what? Come here and throw open your closet and be able to say to the world, see those skeletons? Jesus set me free. You can complain about those if you want, but I am no longer bound by those anymore. And that's what Jesus did for Peter. That's what Jesus wants to do for us. And part of it is, as long as you are um, carrying around the weight of guilt and shame, God can't use you in the, in the broadness and with the freedom that he wants to use you. And that's why it was so important that Peter get past this. Because he was tapped to be the one on Pentecost to stand up. The one to lead the early disciples. And he couldn't do it if he had that in the back of his mind or in the back of his soul.
So, John chapter 21, verse 15. Jesus has cooked them breakfast. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, there's, there's debate on what these are. Could be the fishing business, could be the other disciples, could be... Jesus didn't identify. My hunch is it's the other disciples because what was it that caused Peter to betray Jesus? What other people thought of him, right? He, 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 he was intimidated by a little servant girl at one point. Oh, you're one of his disciples. No, no, I'm not. No, no, I'm not. No, no, I'm not. It wasn't even a Roman soldier. It was the opinion of other people. And so Jesus asked him this pointed question. Do you love me more than these? And Peter's response, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, and at this point, Peter probably was getting angst, irritated, frustrated. He didn't know where Jesus was going with this. Why do you keep asking me these same questions? Or, and, and again, we don't know all the nuances. We don't know what was going on inside of Peter. All we can do is just maybe think, you know, project about our own experiences. But I, I think he, was, he, he wasn't connecting the dots. And so he was getting frustrated. He says, Lord, you know everything. No, uh, let, me, let me back up. Do you love me? Peter was grieved. He was saddened that Jesus would ask him a third time for, for whatever reason, because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. How many times did Peter betray Jesus? Three. How many times did he ask him if he loved him? Three. His conviction, he was, he was convicting him. He was coming back to restore. He didn't want just to forgive. He was already forgiven. Jesus had forgiven him. We know Jesus. For, but, but here he was trying to deliver him from the shame and the guilt that he had. Because I think Peter was carrying it around. I think, and again, there's nothing, Scripture doesn't say this. But I believe that Peter was carrying around the guilt of the betrayal. Yeah, Jesus is back. And I know he's appeared to us, and he's, and he's told us, and he's forgiven me, but how can I ever be the man that he told me that I was going to be? How can, how, how can I ever do the things that he told me I was going to do? How could I ever be the leader that he told me? that I was supposed to be, that I was, when I come back, I'm supposed to strengthen my brethren. How can it be? Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus continues, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. In the first three questions he asked him, he was, he was saying, okay, you betrayed me once, you love me, I accept that. You betrayed me twice, 
I love you. I, I ask you again. You say, I, you do, I believe you. I believe you a third time. And now I'm telling you that all of that is over because you are going to serve me like I told you you were going to serve me. And, I'm, and the way that I'm going to tell you that is because you're going to die for me. And so he gave them his, he gave them his future. Yes, you're going to follow me, you're going to serve me, and as a result, you're going to pay the ultimate price for that. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. All that's in the past. All of that's in the past. So here is an example of conviction, confrontation of what God does in our lives and how he sets us free. The first part was see it. So we go back up to those, those bullet points. See it. It's the only way that we can really see our sin for the, the horrible thing that it is is through the understanding of the Holy Spirit. If Jesus would have come to Peter and just said, do you love me? Yeah, I love you. And just left it. It wouldn't have drilled down into what Peter was really going through. Peter knew what he'd done, but in some ways, I don't, I'm not sure he was seeing it as Jesus does. I think this is one of the, the, the negative pieces of American Christianity right now is when um, um, someone comes, uh, comes up and say, you know, coming to Christ is, is just really simple. All you have to do is pray this prayer. Just pray. You know, you admit that your sins and you accept Jesus as Savior and you're going to follow. And, and it, it's almost like this $5 transaction instead of recognizing the depth of what sin is. I don't think we in uh, American Christianity really zero in on the depth of what sin does. I think that's what the learning community study on um, the American gospel really helped us to see, is the depth of sin. The, I think the movie The Passion is a good depiction of the cost of sin. Original sin devastated everything in the world. You know, you wouldn't have any of the problems that you have if it hadn't been for original sin. It turned the world upside down. It, all of creation was devastated by that original sin. It, sin deserves death. You deserve to die. And the only reason you don't is because Jesus paid the price. Jesus died. Sin destroys everything in our lives. Jesus said the, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what sin does. It steals, it kills, it destroys. Sin is devastating. And you can be forgiven of sin and have... And, and what we see in the life of David is he was forgiven of his sin, but his kingdom was never the same. His family was never the same. The consequences of sin still go on. It required Jesus to... Sin is devastating. And when we turn away from God, we turn to a, a life that will destroy. It breaks God's heart as well as his law. Sin is breaking God's heart. And when we see it as that awful thing, instead of just, oh, you know, I did something wrong. We begin to understand sin and we begin to agree with, with what God says about sin. We have to see it, which then leads us to feel it. Peter was, so in uh, verse 17, it says, Peter was grieved when Jesus asked him a third time. 
Sin has to break our hearts in order for us to see it and understand it as God sees it. There's a tendency to downplay our sin. Oh, that's no big deal. To dismiss it, to justify it, to rationalize it, to even spiritualize it. That's what Saul did. If you remember a few weeks ago when when Samuel came to him and said, I told you to go attack this village and destroy everything. So what is the bleed, this bleeding of sheep that I hear in my ears? And Saul goes, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. I know God told me to destroy everything, but I kept the best to sacrifice to God. He was putting a spin on it. My tendency is to put a spin on my sin. Your tendency is to, instead of looking it in the face and saying, I broke God's heart. We justify, oh, well, you know, if my children would act better, I wouldn't do that. You know, my neighbor would act better, I wouldn't do that. No, it's breaking God's heart. We have to feel the sin. Have you ever done something that made you feel so guilty that you felt like there was a 200-pound weight around your neck? And you're just heartbroken and you think, I, I shouldn't even live. That's what we ought to feel about sin. Because it breaks God's heart. It breaks God's law and it cost the father his son. Response to sin needs to be a deep remorse that causes us to never want to do it again and to to fall at the foot of the cross and be so grateful. James chapter 4, verses 8 to 10. I didn't put this in your outline. I encourage you to write it down. James chapter 4, verses 8 to 10. If you turn there, Here's how he says we should feel when we sin. James chapter 4, verses 8 to 10. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. When God convicts you, when he puts his finger on that thing that you've done wrong, instead of running away, which is what we really want to do because we don't want to face God. Turn to him. Draw near to him and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. The hands represent the, what we've done, our actions. You sinners, and, and he's talking to Christians here, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That's the depth of what we ought to feel when we sin against God, when we, when we do anything that is in disobedience to Him. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. How often do we dismiss the devastation of our sin, and we don't feel it because we don't like to feel it, right? So we try to numb it, we, try to, we, we get busy with something else, we don't want to think about it, we, we just, you just want to get rid of it. We don't want to feel the sin. And yet when Jesus is there with Peter, he's there and he keeps asking him the question, keeps asking him the question, keeps drilling down, keeps, and he forces 
Peter to be grieved. And sometimes that's what God has to do to us in order for us to know, I want to take that. The only way to get free of, so we can be forgiven, but the only way to get free of that guilt and shame that the devil wants us to hold on to is to grieve it deeply enough that we open our hands and give it to him. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Don't run when you feel the devastation of your sin. Stay with those feelings, preferably on your knees before God with tears in your eyes. Because if you'll stay with those feelings, God will deliver you from them. But if you just keep burying them, you know what buried feelings do? They just fester and grow and get stronger and they come out in other ways that are, and it's always ugly. Feel it. And then the next one is to admit it. It wasn't that Jesus wanted Peter to be grieved. That wasn't the point. But rather grieving was the pathway in order for Peter to admit what he'd done. To really come clean with it. So along with the bent towards sin that came with that original sin, excusing ourselves came with it as well. Do you remember what happened in the garden? Adam and Eve sinned. They recognized that they were naked, hid themselves. God comes in the cool of the day and he says, Adam and Eve, where are you? They come, what have you done? Nobody admitted anything, right? Adam, did you either... Well, this woman that you gave me, right? He's not really blaming Eve. He's blaming God. This woman you gave me. And and then Eve goes, oh, no, it was the serpent. The tendency to not admit what we've done, but rather to blame somebody else. When I was, um, I think I was six or seven years old, we were living in town in Springfield, this, this little addition you know, with these small homes. And I got to be good friends with a kid across the street, Mike Hines. I was over there visiting my, I think my mom was in the hospital. She was having a baby or something. My dad was at work. And so I was kind of hanging out with the neighborhood kids. And um, Mike Hines and I like baseball cards. And so we started talking about baseball cards. And he said, you know, my little brother, I think we were seven, he was five. My little brother has some money in his piggy bank we could use that money and buy baseball cards. And I remember having some angst in here, but I thought, well, it's his brother. It's not my brother. (laughs) See how this goes? The natural bent at seven years old. And so we sat there with his little brother, Jeff, and with his piggy bank, and we talked him into buying baseball cards. Because even at that age, in the back of our minds, in the subconsciousness, if we talk him into buying baseball cards and sharing them with us, we're not stealing his money. We're just being good salespeople. <laughs> and so back in those days, you could walk to the store when you were seven years old. We took his little brother's money and we bought baseball cards, and brought it back to his house, thinking that nobody would ever be the wiser, Right? but they were. His mom found out, and his mom called my dad. Mm -hmm. 
and said, did you steal Jeff Hines' money? No, we didn't steal. We just talked to him and we said, wouldn't you like to buy some baseball cards? And my dad saw right through that. And it was about that time I think my dad started looking for a way to move me out of the suburbs into the country where there weren't any other kids around. And I remember, so here I am, almost 60 years later, looking back at that, sad. Because I, I didn't want to admit, I, I, no, I didn't do anything wrong, I didn't do anything wrong, I did yeah, I did something wrong, but I didn't want to admit it. And, I, and even as a seven-year-old, having this incredible capacity to justify it, excuse it, you know, make it sound good, you know, all, all these different things. Now, after we, when we're not 70, we don't do that anymore, do we? Oh, yeah. Our natural tendency is not to admit it. Our natural tendency is just to say, oh, yeah, um, something went wrong. Um, one of the, when I used to get the newspaper, I, I loved the Family Circus cartoon. Anybody know what the Family Circus cartoon is? And one of the things I loved about it was there was this continuing kind of theme with the parents and the kids that went like this. On the, th- on the left-hand side, it says, who threw sunflower seeds all over the f- this floor? And the answer is, not me, not me. And there's a little character there, not me, did it. And then on the right, it said, all right, who is kicking the table? Not me, I don't know, nobody, not me, not me, not me, not me. And everybody's kicking the table. Our natural tendency is to say, not me, or she made me do it, or there's some other extenuating circumstances. That's why we have so many lawyers in this country. Right? Because nobody wants to take responsibility and just own up. And that's part of the problem with confessing of sin. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. He owns it. He owns what he did. And it was, it, it took Jesus three times to get Peter to understand, look, you need to own this but I'm setting you free. The final piece is to repent of it. To repent of it. Not only to see it, sin for what it really is, to feel it and to admit it or own it, but to repent of it. Repent is, in, our, in uh, the terminology that we've been using quite often, is to <clears throat> turn... It's to start living in God's right-side-up kingdom in an upside-down world. To repent of our sin is to turn away from it. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but those of you that grew up in the Catholic Church, when you started going to confession, how many times did you confess the same sin or the same kind of sin over and over again? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Why? Because it's easy, right? Yeah. I stole my sister's gum. Well, stop it. You came in here 52 52 times ago and you confessed to the same thing. Stop it. But our, uh, but our, our tendency is not to stop it. Our tendency is to say, yeah, I did it. I shouldn't have done it. I feel bad for it, but I don't feel that bad about it. And I'm going to go do it again. Right? Am I right? 
You have not really confessed your sin until you repent of it. You turn 180 degrees and you go the opposite way. What do we see in Peter? In this moment, Peter, Jesus says, do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. I restore you to do what I told you to do before you, re- before you betrayed me. I take away your shame. And in a few days, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit so that you can stand up on Pentecost Sunday free from shame, free from guilt, knowing that I took all of that. You have nothing to be ashamed of. You can open your closet, let everybody see the skeletons that are there, and still my spirit will use you to turn the world right side up. You know why? Because he did 180 degrees. He said, I'm not going to betray you anymore. I am going to follow you. Jesus, you say, follow me, I will follow you. And Peter went to a cross. And tradition tells us that when he was faced with the cross, he said to his captors, he says, I don't want to be crucified the same way as my Lord. Crucify me upside down. I don't deserve it. That was his love. We have to repent of our sin. So if there's anything, if there's any point of shame or guilt that, that, that is still embedded there, is it possible you haven't turned the full 180 degrees? That you're still holding on to something. Sometimes I hear Christians give their testimony and they talk about their old life and it sounds like there's a hint of longing for the old life. when we need to be devastated by it. We need to, it needs to make us sick when we think of the old life. 180 degree turn. Confession is agreeing with God about our sin. It's seeing it, admitting it, or feeling it, admitting it, and then repenting. 180 degree turn. Would you bow your heads? I want to ask you a couple of questions. First of all, are you still carrying guilt and shame for things of the past that Jesus gave his life on the cross to set you free from? If you are, Jesus is inviting you to let it go to let him have it. He didn't die on the cross to forgive 50% of your sin and shame, but rather to set you free. The devil is the one who tries to use shame, that you're a bad person, that if people really knew who you were and what you've done, they wouldn't love you. All of those lies, that's shame. The devil tries to use that. Jesus says, You don't need to be ashamed anymore. I I remove your sin as far as the east is from the west. I remove, I bury them in the deepest sea. I remember them no more. And he wants to set you free. But you got to let him have them. And every time the devil brings them to mind is to turn and I'm free. I'm free. God, I give them to you. They're yours. I give them to you. I'm done. God, forgive me. God forgave me. I don't have to hold them anymore. Next question, is there any sin that you haven't turned 180 degrees away from and have started walking the other direction? Because if you're holding on to any, then you're not holding on to Christ. 
And sometimes it's asking him to help us see that sin the way he sees it. In the devastating nature that it is. Is there anything that you're still not turning away from? I encourage you to do it today. Just turn your back, turn on your heel, 180 degrees, and leave it in the dust, in the power of God. Lord, I pray that you would work in each one of our lives to identify those things, anything that is a hindrance from being fully free. That you would give us the ability to own it completely. To put it in your hands. To turn away from it and turn to you and follow you. Lord, I pray that you would overwhelm each person here with your presence, your spirit, giving them whatever resources, whatever strength, whatever information, whatever they need to set them free. God, that we can truly be all you want us to be. I pray that you would use this week of prayer and fasting to draw us closer to you, to experience the freedom that confession brings. Lord, have your way. Do what you want to do.